can see to John chapter 5. Yeah, so today we are going to look at, I, th- I think, one of the just um, really, really important texts in regard to looking at the glory of who Jesus is and just, and in, in again, John 5 through 7, just some very, very important things. It's fascinating to me um, to looking at these texts because this is this section of John I really really like. It's just so so important for us to to, to see these things because one, we we begin to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Godhead, and then and with that we begin to learn how the Father worked and how Jesus worked and how they worked together. And so the beauty and intimacy of that is pretty amazing. And so John's writing this gospel at the end of the first century and so he's been walking with the lord for about 70 to 80 years some of that was a brief period of time physically on the earth but then he walked with the lord as well like you and i do um spiritually filled with the spirit and and so um not only did he write what jesus said but he also explained in this text what jesus meant by um some of these things and so so some aspects of this stuff that we will see today that really gives us some unique insight into the trinity and uh and i think there are just some things very worth um pondering on thinking about examining um in a really important way so let me just remind us of the context of where we are today so on a Sabbath day, Jesus steps into this area um, where the pool of Bethesda is. He goes up to one specific man and says, do you want to be made well? And the man um, is still sticking to his plan and his hope is found in the water. And so Jesus says, no, I'm telling you, pick up your mat and, and walk. And the man literally does that. The day this happens, it's a Sabbath, so he's walking. He goes from there, Bethesda, very near the temple, and he's now in the temple, and he's carrying around a map. And the religious police find him there, and they're like, what in the world are you doing? This is a Sabbath day. You're not supposed to be carrying your mat. And he's like, well, I'm just doing what the guy who healed me told me to do, and so I'm carrying my mat. Well, eventually, first of all, they don't know that Jesus has done it, and then they come to find out that Jesus is the one who actually brought this healing, and they are persecuting Jesus. And so the context of what Jesus is unveiling in John chapter 5 is that he's ignoring their Sabbath rules. And so they're ultimately more upset with Jesus than they are the man because Jesus has given the man the permission to break the rules. The man is breaking the rules, but Jesus has the greater sin by telling the man that he can do what he's going to do. And so for the rest of John chapter 5, Jesus is going to set forth why he lived in the way that he did, and uh, in this unique relationship that was connected with him. So we've been talking in the, um, today when we, <clears throat> okay, Adamus, y'all got to help me here, okay, all right. First W is what? Who he is, right? Who he is, okay. The most important question that we always ask of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is what does this tell me about who God is? All the other questions, as important as some of them are, are secondary to that one because the the purpose of the Scripture is to be a revelation, ultimately, of who Jesus is, to, to, to see that. And so, so that, that, that is going to permeate the rest of John chapter 5 over the next several weeks. We will look at um, all the different things about who Jesus is. And so every, every other question and ultimately is a secondary kind of question because everything else is after who Jesus is. 
And so therefore, if Jesus is who he claims to be, and who the Bible reveals him to be, that is where we have to rest what the Scripture reveals about him, even if doubts sometimes might remain about certain questions people have about the Bible. They all, just because doubts are there doesn't mean that the Scripture is not true. And so we know that, but it's important uh, to, to be reminded of that. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and in it, he, he, um, there's a short section that's really important. Let me share it with us before we read the text. He wrote on page 56, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him lord and god but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher he has not left that option open to us and he did not intend to and i think it's great insight from c.s lewis jesus stated the case and we will see in the text today he's god or he's not and so he's going to set forth the uniqueness about that. So look with me, John 5, and we're going to read 16 through 20. So some of this we've already touched on a little bit, but uh, we're going to kind of bring everything back and look at some of it in a new way. John 5, verse 16. <clears throat> so this is why G- the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, And I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So here's how Jesus responded. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So let's walk through. So verse 16, I want to take us back. We've kind of already touched on this. We know it's the Sabbath. But I just want to remind us, God's compassion for for us never ends it doesn't it doesn't depend on the day he's gonna he's gonna be at work and pouring out his love for us on the sabbath day he's gonna do it on christmas day he's gonna do it on thanksgiving day he's gonna do it on our birthday he's gonna do it in, in our in our most darkest moment crisis moment his love his mercy his compassion to us is never going to end he has extended this mercy and this compassion to this man who's by the pool of bethesda again the man wasn't looking for for somebody to come by and say, hey, do you want to be healed? He was looking to get into the water. And so Jesus steps into his life. And that's just, that's the beauty of grace. This man was not looking for Jesus on that day. And so Jesus steps into his life. He extends this grace. And so his compassion for you and I is never going to end. And it's interesting. It says there in 16, they were persecuting Jesus because of this kind act that he did to the man. Now think about this with me just for a minute. 
they have problems with a man who had not walked in 38 years now walking, but they had no trouble on the Sabbath getting together and plotting to murder Jesus. The lunacy and the hypocrisy of what they're doing is amazing. So they're okay getting in their corner. Okay, we've got to kill this guy. But they have a problem with a kind, gracious, compassionate act to a man who couldn't walk. And honestly, it just reminds us that throughout the history of the world, from Genesis chapter 4 all the way to this Sunday today, the persecution of God's people, the persecution of those who desire to live righteous has always been around. You got two brothers in Genesis chapter 4. One honors God right with a sacrifice. One doesn't. God addresses that. The one brother who doesn't do the right thing gets angry and murders his brother. This is immediately outside the garden. And from that moment on, from Abraham to David uh, to Moses to Joseph to the Apostle Paul to the Apostle John, God's people have been attacked. And they've been persecuted. And here Jesus on this day, he has only done something beautiful and they are persecuting him and they cannot see um just the craziness of them plotting murder um at uh at jesus and so um i think that just reveals this that this thing right here is wicked you know paul says it psalms right david wrote about it that our heart jeremiah writes about it our heart is wicked and it just has a lot of darkness in it and it just reveals um that case with the religious leaders and the problem with them was that they, they, they valued the form of authentic faith looking right, but they didn't value authentic faith. And you and I know that. We can play the game, and we know we're playing the game, and God always sees the reality of our heart. But they valued the form of an authentic faith, but they never really walked in that uh, authentic faith. And Jesus couldn't stomach hypocrisy. And that's why he had such um, such strong confrontations with them because they embraced hypocrisy but so i just want to remind us this morning the beauty of jesus his compassion never ends it's new every morning it is it is extended to people that are broken and so 16 reveals to us that his compassion never ends the second thing is is found in 17 so jesus and the father's ceaseless work so let's talk about that so 17 says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now these words set them off. I mean, they're just like, oh my goodness, because Jesus is making Yahweh's work, and he's making his work that he's just done. He's making them equal, and in their minds, you cannot call yourself God, and that's their big issue. But Jesus states here that his work was the exact same work as the father in heaven and so jesus is making himself equal with god and i love what it says here look look what it's there in quotations in 17 my father jesus loved to say my father our father and to give this personal nature in regard to who god is and so he he speaks and says my father what is my father doing my father is working until now so let's let's be reminded of this God has never stopped working on the Sabbath. Now, did he rest in that? Yes, it says it there in Genesis. But think about this for a moment. He causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the Sabbath. He blessed Israel in their history with the blessing of children on a Sabbath day. Children were born on the Sabbath day. Crops grew on the Sabbath day with the blessing of the rain and the blessing of the sun.
animals were born that were good for the family and good for the farm throughout Israel on the Sabbath day. God had always been at work doing things. Were the, was the nation of Israel to rest? Absolutely they were to rest. But Jesus is affirming here that God is always at work. And by the way, we, want, we don't want a day of the week that he's not at work. We want him working every moment of every day. And so Jesus says, my father is working until now. And so God has never ceased to move forth in his plans on any day in history. The religious leaders just didn't want to see about that, didn't want to contemplate it. They had their rules. Everybody needs to follow the rules. And if you don't, you're going to get in trouble about that. And so Jesus on this day is affirming, my father has always been at work. And so now I am here. I am equal to the Father, and so I am at work just like my Father has been at work. And I think the application for us under this point is this, as we join in the work of the gospel. So this afternoon, Lily, you're going to want to take a nap. I'm going to sleep four or five hours this afternoon. A friend may text and say, hey, I need, I need some help. I need, I need to talk. So you could go, well, can this wait till Tuesday? You know, I'm, I'm napping today. Or you can say, no, um, I'm going to give the time that you need, and I'm going to do what's right. And so we, yes, do we rest? Absolutely, we are to rest. But there's moments when when we are to join in what God's doing and join in the work and to, and to extend the compassion to other people. So one, Jesus' compassion never ends. Two, the Father is always at work, and therefore Jesus was always at work. And here's the third thing. Look at 18. So this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now I want to talk for a moment, and this is really important, about Jesus' equality with the Father. These things, and I know you guys love these kind of things, this, this section here is so incredibly incredibly important what we're about to look at because Jesus is about to to lay forth some things on the table for our consideration that are of of the utmost importance to embrace to understand his nature and how he works so there's two things verse 18 tells us as to why they hated him one he was breaking the sabbath he wasn't breaking the sabbath he was breaking their sabbath man-made rules secondly they were persecuting him and wanted to kill him because he was making himself equal with God and so Jesus is according to the scripture over and over from Paul's writings John's writings Peter's writings the gospel writings Jesus is equal with the father by sharing the same nature as God the father now the father is the father the son is the son and the spirit is the spirit so they are three distinct but their nature their essence is God they are one God manifested in 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 three persons the father son and the spirit and so there was not a time in history where jesus did not exist he did not come into existence at bethlehem um he was not created he did not become the son of the father again with his birth in bethlehem this was arius's a heresy um and back in the day in church history and this is the modern father's or followers of Arius are the Jehovah's Witnesses. But John 1, 1 through 3 affirms to us, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things have been created for Him. Without Him, nothing has been made 
that has been made. So Jesus has said he's preexistent, he's coexistent, he is of the same essence as the Father. So Jesus is making his statement to the religious leaders. Here's why I healed the man, because my father was about healing today. And so because we are one, I'm going to do what the father does. Because we don't act independently from one another. And so Jesus says, I am of the same essence, and I'm going to do what my father does. And so not only is Jesus saying that God is his father, but Jesus is also saying, um, I have the same exact authority and right to do exactly what the father does on a Sabbath. Now let me give two applications to us this morning. Based on the religious leader's anger. Why were they so angry? Well one reason is simply this. An insight about Jesus. Jesus was never afraid. And we can as well be this way. He was never afraid to state the truth. Even though it might put him in danger. Or even though somebody may, not, may disagree. With what he was saying. Did he know they were not going to like when he said, my father's at work and I'm at work now? Of course he knew they were not going to like that. He knew it was in their hearts. But he wasn't afraid to state what was true and what was obvious. And that's a reminder for you and I. We state what is true. We know what is true. We speak it and then we stand there. And the next thing connected with that is what happens in the text. The truth is always going to anger upset sinners and hypocrites it's just always going to be that way and i think as god's people we just have to embrace that true reality is that we speak the truth we stand in the truth and people are not going to be happy about what we do and the reason this is so important is what we see next in the first part of 19 is the fourth fourth point this morning is jesus was solely about the truth he wasn't about just Okay, I just want to make sure everybody feels good about things. And, and he, he wanted to love people and he wanted to change them. But he's more concerned about truth. And so sometimes the truth needed to be stated so that freedom could come. Because if the truth wasn't spoken, John 8 tells us clearly, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If there's not truth, then there's no freedom. And so Jesus would speak the truth. And so he says in the first part of 19, So Jesus said to them, the religious leaders, Truly, truly, this, this repetition of truly, truly, in the Greek meant this back in the day was I'm about to say something that is fixed it's permanent and these are the things you need to embrace and so what he's about to say right after truly truly I say to you are really important for us to understand so let, let, let's let's remember this everything that can be said about the glory of Yahweh in the Old Testament can be said about who Jesus father has ultimate glory guess who also has ultimate glory the son does guess who also has ultimate glory the spirit does and so what can be said about the father can be said of the son can be said of jesus and so so um jesus is basically almost saying this to them as well if you have a problem with me doing good on the sabbath and i only do what my father does and say what my father does guess who you also have a problem with you have a problem with yahweh I know you got a problem with me. You don't think I'm God, but I, I, I am equal with the Father. And because you have a problem with me, and I only do what the Father does, then you also have a problem with the Father. Because Jesus says, He is my Father, and I do exactly what He does. And this includes doing things on the Sabbath. All right, let's come to the second part of 19. 
And as the son can do nothing of his own accord, and this is the fifth thing I want us to see this morning, it's Jesus' complete trust in the Father. Now this, this is critical. We have got to understand this reality. So Jesus says the son can do nothing of his own accord. Now what this means for us is that Jesus did nothing, said nothing, healed, whatever the case may be, Whatever he did, he did at the direction of the Father. And the reason this is so important is because it indicates to us that he had complete and implicit trust in his Father every moment of the day. Now, this we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but there is no separation between the Father and the Son. There's no separation between the Son and the Spirit. They, there's a unity that's there that is so deep and so powerful. And Jesus knew this, that every moment of the day, he could trust in the absolute goodness of his Father. Now, think back with me. Remember the Garden of Eden? Not Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane. Do remember the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. So he's in the garden. He says, hey guys, stay awake with me and pray. And he goes off by himself. And he recognizes the horror of the cross. And he says, Father, is there a way for this cup to pass from me? Nevertheless, your will be done over my will be done. It's really important to see this. So he comes back and they're sleeping. Guys, what's the deal, man? Won't you got to stay awake? And he goes on again. Father, will this cup pass for me? And so there, right in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's approaching the horrors of the cross, guess what Jesus trusts in in the garden? He trusts in the goodness of his Father. That the plan of the cross was the best choice, even with all of its horrors, Jesus trusted the goodness of the Father in that moment. On the cross, what was Jesus doing? He was extending goodness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But his last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So there was not a moment ever in Christ's life where he was not trusting in the goodness of the Father. The cross as awful it is, we know we, we worship Him and we glorify Him. It's awful, but it brought about this goodness to our lives that is absolutely astounding what has come to us in salvation. So Jesus, when He makes this statement, the Son can do nothing of His own accord. He's not indicating, well, I'm, I'm just a weak man in a human body and... and uh, Boy, I, uh, the Father, I just, I just really need the Father. And yes, he did need the Father. But, but just because, this is important, just because he had become man did not mean that he was less than God. He was God completely, even as man. And so what does this mean then? Because it's important to ask this question, that the Son can do nothing of his own accord. And here's what I think it means. It points to the unity of the Godhead. And it, it points to the reality that the Father and the Son cannot really be separated in their essence. Are they distinct? Well, of course they're distinct. But their essence is God. So when the Father thinks something, says something, that it, then Jesus thinks and says and does. The Spirit does as well. And so this is an indication of the incredible depth of the unity of the trinity and so when jesus says the son can do nothing of his own accord it points to the union between the son and the father that they are one and it's a great emphasis of this and let me give three very important implications here here's the first one 
Jesus would never do anything independent from the Father, for they are one. So Jesus wasn't going to wake up one day and go, I think I'll just do this on my own. I'll do this. Why, why would he not do that? Because the Trinity thinks the same thing. There's never been a moment they've opposed each other on anything. And so as the Father thinks, the Son speaks, thinks. As the Spirit thinks, the Son thinks. As the Son thinks, the Father and the Spirit think. There is a unity there. So Jesus was. Some people say, well, what if he had sinned? Well, I don't think this was ever even an option. And here's why I don't think it was an option for him to sin. God's plans are perfect. God is perfect. And so therefore... This plan for Jesus to coming to redeem mankind, was Jesus ever going to turn away from that? No, the Father does not choose sin. The Father doesn't encourage sin, encourage darkness. So if the Father does not think sin, encourage sin, encourage darkness, was the Son who is in complete union with the Father ever going to think that way and act that way? And no, it's not there. Now, was Jesus tempted? Yeah, the book of Hebrews says Jesus was tempted. The temptation in the wilderness was temptation, but it doesn't mean just because he was tempted that he was going to choose to sin. I think this, for me, this truthful reality gives great confidence to our faith is that this was not going to be an option for Jesus to sin. He was so in unity with the Father that he would never do anything independent from the Father, for they are one. John 10.30, he says this, I and the Father are one. There's no separation from that reality. Here's the second implication. So since he would never do anything independent from the Father, for they are one. Secondly, he would always live in agreement with the Father. So they would be in agreement with one another. So he's not going to do anything independent. They would continue to be in agreement with one another. The Father and the Son live in the most sacred, connected relationship that has ever existed. And in this relationship, there's openness in every single matter. There's always agreement on everything. So the plan of salvation, guess what? There was an agreement between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. There was, there was the, the sacrifice for sin. There was an agreement with the Father. They were not making this up along the way. There was always absolute agreement with them. And it's been this way from before time began. It's been that way uh, before sin entered the world. And it's been that way since sin entered the world. They have never seen a matter. They have never seen a situation differently. And so I believe choosing sin or doing something independent would not have happened because Jesus and the Father are one. Here's a third implication. Is that Jesus would always live for and desire to obey the Father for they are one. He wasn't going to want to do anything that his Father wasn't doing and was about because the passion and the desire was in the unity of the Godhead. Now in John 17, 21, it says this. Jesus praying says that they... All may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. So to act on his own independence from the Father would be for Jesus to sin. And Jesus wasn't going to do that. And so to break the union of the Father and the Son, 
he was not going to do that. And I believe that Jesus models for us here the most, one of the most God-honoring parts of our faith is that absolute obedience and walking to the will of God even when it's difficult and tough. And that's exactly what he did. He completely trusted the Father and it's expressed in this oneness with God um, in a beautiful, beautiful way. All right, let's look at the, the sixth thing this morning. And then he says this. He speaks about keeping his eyes on the work of the Father. But the Son, um, first part of 19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, or the second part, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And so Jesus here um, reveals to us three really, really critical, important realities that we must embrace because this truth confirms to us why the life of Jesus is so important for us to examine and to intimately know. Here's the first one. So Jesus kept his eyes on the work of the Father. Here's the first implication. Jesus, and this, the, these, these three things are really important. He is the only one in the history of the world and the only one who will ever be who could see perfectly what the Father was doing. Nobody can see what the Father's up to on a daily basis, intimately, every second, every minute, every hour. So Jesus is the only one who could see what the Father was up to. So when he steps into to the pool of Bethesda that day and he sees this man and he knows what's going on, the Father has already been at work. The Father is at work because they are in unity. They, the, Jesus knows this is the man that's going to be touched today. And so he goes exactly to the man. And so, so Jesus knows what the Father is up to. He knows what he's doing. He's the only one who can do that. And so that's why, that's why for us it's so important to know the glory of Jesus because he reveals the glory of the Father. The Spirit's role is to bring glory to Jesus. And so this, this beautiful thing that is connected in the Trinity, and so that's why we need to know, we need to read, we need to memorize, we need to embrace, we need to love, and we need to speak the truth of God's Word and obey it is because Jesus reveals to us that He is the only one who knows what the Father is perfectly up to. And so, again, he's not working independently, doing his own thing. His works are consistent with the will of the Father. So Jesus kept his eyes on the Father. He had this in, in complete trust. And, and, and it was this reality that he is the only one who reveals to us what the Father's doing. Here's the second implication here. He's the only one who could perfectly hear and know the words of the Father. So not only does he know what the Father's up to and what the Father's doing, and he's the only one who can reveal what the Father is up to, he also is the only one who can perfectly hear the words of the Father and bring them to us. We know the words of the Father. How in the world do we know the words of the Father? Because Jesus could hear them, and he gave them to us. Listen to this. This is John 17, 8. Turn over there real quick. John 17, 8 for a second. And this is a good one to look at. John 17, 8. The 
For I have given them the words that you gave me. Now just think of that for a moment. So the Father has these words. He gave them to Jesus to do what? For I have given them to give to the disciples. For I have given them the words that you gave me. Look at the next part of 8. And they have received them. And have come to know the truth. That I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. That is such a great verse. So the Father had these words. So Jesus didn't go, okay, I'm just going to preach my own thing today. I'm going to do my own thing. The Father gave these words for the Son to communicate. They are in unity together. The Son spoke the words that the Father had given him. He spoke them to the disciples. The disciples embraced the words. They received them. And because they received the eternal words of the Father given to the Son, now given to the disciples, they had come to know the truth that Jesus was the eternal Son of God. He had come from heaven, and they believed that Jesus had been sent. So Jesus kept his eyes on the work of the Father, last part of 19, but only, but only what he sees the Father doing, and whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So he's the only one who could know what the Father's doing. He's the only one who could perfectly hear the words of and know the words of the Father, and He has given them to us. And that's why this book in our laps this morning, it's trustworthy. It's come to us from the heart of the Father to the heart of the Son. And then we know from John 15, 16, and 7, or 15 and 16, the Spirit gave revelation into the writing of the Scripture. Here's the third implication about Jesus keeping his eyes on the work of the Father. He's the only one who can see what the Father's doing. He's the only one who perfectly hear and know the words of the Father. Here's the third one. He is the only one who can perfectly do what the Father does. He lived perfect. He didn't sin. He didn't abort the mission. He didn't choose darkness. He's the only one who lived in such a way where he never chose sin. We know that the Father was very pleased in Jesus. Matthew three seventeen. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew seventeen five. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter writes in Second Peter one sixteen. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses, Peter says, I was up on the mountain of transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received the honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, where the Father said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter says, heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, let's bring all this down to, to finish things up this morning. So Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. They've got a problem that he, he has disregarded their rules. And so Jesus says, the reason I did this is my father was about healing this man. I joined in the work of my father to heal this man. You've got a problem with it, but here's the deal. My father's at work. I'm equal with the father, so I'm going to do what the father does. And because of that reality, here's the thing. I'm never going to act independently from the father. I'm always going to live in agreement with the father. I desire to live for and obey God 
my Father in the most powerful way. I see what the Father is up to. I hear what the Father says, and I make it known. And because Jesus lived that way, He's the only one who perfectly lived out the will of God. And because of that, He has become the very essence of the only one who therefore can rescue our souls. He becomes what the Bible speaks of as the propitiation. I love that word, such a great word, for our sins. Propitiation means that it means someone must satisfy the demands of the Father in regard to our sin. And so who can do that? Since God is holy by nature, he demands justice to be made against sin. And his nature demands that sin be punished. The payment for sin must be that it must be wholly, completely satisfactory to God. So here's the scenario. If God punished mankind for his sin without a propitiation, without a sacrifice that satisfied the Father, then we would all die and we would go to hell and there would be no hope. So what's the solution to a grave issue? Well, there must be one to stand in our place. There must be a substitute. And so Jesus, because he's the only one who could do this, the only one who perfectly lived the will of the Father, he became the propitiation, the one who laid down his life, bore our sin in his body so that the Father would be satisfied. It was a righteous judgment and a righteous substitute for our sin. And it's beautiful. It's an unbelievable thing. Now, this is affirmed over and over in the New Testament. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Hebrews 2.17, to make propitiation a satisfactory sacrifice gift for the sins of the people. 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation, the one who satisfies the demands of the Father for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this reality of what Jesus is sharing on this day is incredibly important doctrinally, theologically for us. He's the only one who knows what the Father's up to. He's the only one who could hear the Father's words perfectly. And because he's the only one who lived the Father's will perfectly, he became the only one who could rescue our souls from damnation. Because he's the only one who could take and bear our sin. And all of this was done. It's backwards from the world. Why would, why would a loving, compassionate father give their one and only son to such a violent death? And the scripture says that all of this plan took place because, watch, it's, again, it's crazy. Because the father loved the son. This plan was beautiful and good, even in the midst of the, the human aspects of it were horrible. So look at 20. Four. The Father loves the Son, and He shows the Son all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. Three brief things here. 
The Father loves to show Jesus all that the Father is up to. That's the first part. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing. This was the Father's great joy to show Jesus what He was doing and Jesus to join in that. Nothing is hidden from the Son. The Son knows all things. Nothing surprises the Son. The Son of God needs no counsel. He needs no groupthink. He needs no... He doesn't need to Google anything. He has never had anything slip from his mind. He doesn't have to do research. And the love of the Father for the Son is the reason the Father revealed all these things to the Son while he was here. And so, so the Father is, loves the Son. Jesus is deeply loved by the Father. And the Father shows him things. And secondly, Jesus says here, you think, you think that's amazing that I made a man? who hadn't walked in 38 years walked, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do greater works than that. I'm going to cast demons out. People who have been dead for four days, I'm going to speak, and they're going to come alive. Lepers where you couldn't find medical help, um, I'm going to heal him. Blind people who are born blind, um, uh, they're going to see. And I'm going to do this over, and I'm going to do this over. So much so that John closes the gospel in John 21 and said, Jesus said and did so many things that I suppose the whole, there's not enough books in the world that could explain what he has done. That's how he closes John 21. Why is all of this done? So that we would, last part of 20, so that we would marvel at at Jesus. We would just fall at his feet and say, praise your name, Jesus. John MacArthur wrote about this text and I want to just close with this Um, fascinating this is what he writes it might shake you up to hear this but at the heart of God's redeeming work is not God's love for you not God's love for me not God's love for the world and not God's love for sinners at the heart of redemption our salvation it's the father's love for the son and the son's love for the father You say, well, didn't Jesus die because he loved us in a secondary sense? But in a primary sense, Jesus died because he loved the Father. Well, didn't the Father send Jesus to the cross because he loved us in a secondary sense? In a primary sense, he sent the Son to the cross because he loved the Son. And you say, how in the world am I to understand that? And MacArthur writes, you are to understand it in this way, that the whole purpose of redemption, the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of the world, the universe, human history, is so that God the Father can collect a bride to give to the Son, a bride that is an expression of the Father's love for the Son. They'd have this people, the church, who would be redeemed. And the Father will give to the Son a redeemed humanity, collected one day in heaven forever and ever to praise and serve and glorify the Son and always be an everlasting, watch this, an everlasting expression of the Father's love. So when we go to heaven, and the people, the saints from old, the saints in the future, and the saints today are gathered, worshiping, and living in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. The point here is this will be a picture of the everlasting expression of the Father's love for the Son. Now, does the Son give the Father something as an expression? And yes, He does. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four. Then comes the end of the world, the end of the age, when He, speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, delivers the kingdom, this kingdom, 
to the God the Father, Paul writes, after Jesus destroys every rule and authority and power. So look at the beauty of this. The cross, horrible human action, brought about the greatest good for our lives. That sin could be forgiven because the one who could hear the Father, know what the Father's doing, perfectly live the Father's will, he's the only one who could lay down his life as an altar for our sins. And so the Father gives the Son a bride, which again is amazing. I don't know about what's fascinating about me, not much. But what's fascinating, and I think we don't get it, I think we'll get it there, is I think we have no idea what it took to awaken the deadness in us and our sin. It took the cost of His Son. And so the Father, so this beautiful giving a bride of all these broken dead people that are now alive and they are the bride of Christ and then the son will love the father back and say I give you a kingdom that I have established and I've broken every rule and authority against you because I love you John 5 really really significant to our understanding of who God is alright let's pray